I'm here with Michael Goldstein, also known as Bitstein, and I've, uh, it's been an honor, again, to draw another assignment for uh, 21ism to have a chat with uh, Bitstein today. So, uh, Bitstein, thanks for coming on, and uh, I'm look- looking forward to this. Yeah, thanks for having me. I've been a fan of your podcast. Um, so, like you were just saying, you know, there's been a lot of winning going on lately. So, there's, there's definitely a lot of, uh, I'd say, good vibes happening in the space right now. But one of the things that uh, I was thinking about when I was, you know, kind of thinking about doing this, uh, having this discussion was you've been uh, in this game for a long time and you've been promoting, you've been a strong Bitcoin advocate, to say the least, for a very long time. And uh, I, I wonder if we could just start off with a, a question regarding how you first got into it. So I, I'll frame it like this. This thing is so uh, revolutionary, it's so transformative, it's such a paradigm shift. And I think part of the obstacle, uh, well, one of the obstacles that people face when they first confront it, if they're genuinely confronting it with a curious and open mind, is it's hard to believe that it is what it is. And not only that, but it's hard to believe that you somehow stumbled across something like this uh, before 99.99% of people have. So maybe a little bit of background in terms of what primed you for finding Bitcoin and what was the actual Genesis story behind you getting into this? Right. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess first off, we all are extremely lucky to know anything about Bitcoin and be here, um, to be on this ride. Um, for me, the priming started in high school, uh, during the financial crisis when I realized I knew nothing about economics And so I asked a friend online to give me some suggestions of what to read on economics. And I was sent some, I was sent I Pencil by Leonard Reed, um, which is a classic just about the, uh, how complex it is to make even something as simple as a pencil, um, showing just uh, all of the complexity of the market and why basically you would want it to be a free market. And he sent me some Murray Rothbard. And from there, I just, you know, jumped off the deep end, uh, into the deep end and, uh, was, have been stuck in the, uh, Austrian economics rabbit hole since. So, you know, fast forward, you know, I was just, you know, reading everything I could about Austrian economics for many years. And, um, you know, honestly, I was basically like I am for Bitcoin, but for sound money in general, just, you know, mostly gold. Uh, but it was also depressing because it was never going to happen. And you just had to kind of, you know, I don't know, maybe like the U.S. is just, you know, the dollar is just going to collapse. And we're all have to like restart with our ammo and gold or whatever. Um, so it was rather it was a rather depressing spin on, you know, my my current thought system, but the actual uh, monetary economics that formed the basis of 
all of my Bitcoin support was already there. Um, and so when in college I was introduced to Bitcoin, um, when I first heard about it, it was just, you know, it's kind of like a, a funny thing that was happening online. You know, the, the, I guess it was like the 2011 Mount Gox, uh, bubble. Um, I watched that hit its peak and crash and it was like, okay, like it was just like a fun, you know, internet money kind of thing. Um, later on, I heard about the Silk Road, which is very cool um, from a libertarian perspective. Um, I I don't do drugs and I'm not interested in drugs, but I'm interested in free markets and the idea of um, being able to create online digital marketplaces that promote you know peaceful uh, trade between individuals is is something fantastic. So that was kind of on my mind. Uh, but it was really when someone. Um, described Bitcoin as sending gold through the internet, it just kind of clicked these final pieces of understanding it to not be a fiat currency, which a lot of uh, sort of no-coiner libertarians might might describe it as such. I think, you know, Peter Schiff, uh, everyone's favorite punching back at this point, he <laughs> he's described it as fiat, and it's because of this idea that it's just sort of made up. Um, but fiat, of course, literally means by decree. So it's meaning that the the government imposes it on people. And so uh, that is like a little mental barrier that I had to overcome. And as soon as that clicked, you know, I didn't fully understand how uh, Bitcoin did what it claimed. But if it did what it claimed, it was this scarce digital asset, um, then it was perfect. And that's just what we needed. And it it was the perfect money. And I had every reason to just be absolutely bullish um, afterwards. And of course, as you learn more about it, as you were saying, you come to realize it's like this thing like actually works. This is for real. This isn't this isn't just like a hallucination. This is like a real phenomenon. And we're just going to we're going to we're winning and we're going to keep winning <laughs> and we're going to win big all the way till we win everything. Um so that's kind of where my mind's been since uh, since you know late college. Amen, brother. Um, but was it was it difficult to allow yourself to believe that it is what we now you know kind of understand it to be? Because as you said, you know the the gold bugs and the libertarians, and I was in that category too. You know, I was stacking my gold and thinking this is all going to go to hell in a handbasket at some point, and you better have some gold because what else could possibly you know fulfill the role as money when that happens. And you're right. It's a very pessimistic sort of mentality. And I feel like a lot of those people are kind of stuck in like they're looking in the rearview mirror, right? Like maybe we can get back to some type of like, you know, glory day of gold if if and when shit hits the fan. And uh, it's like as much as I disagree with that sentiment for anyone who still holds it, like Peter Schiff and others, uh, I, I understand how difficult it can be to apprehend a, a genuine paradigm shift. So like, I'm, I'm, I'm curious uh, on the kind of the internal dynamics at play that either prohibit or allow people to believe that this is right. what it is. And I'm wondering what that process looked like for you. So, you know, I, I don't think that I'm, you know, a, <laughs> not like a special genius or something um, that, you know, a soothsayer, but, you know, I did have the benefit of being very young um, and already 
you know, I'm a digital native. You know, I've had I've had computers since you know as long as I can remember. You know, as early as like three, clicking around on computers, um, and I've had the internet since you know God knows when. Um, so it's just always been a part of my life. Um, so digital stuff. I mean, this is kind of a meme with regards to. Uh, you know, millennials, but even more so Zoomers, this idea that, oh, you have like the digital natives. I think that was very much real. Um, and so for me, it didn't take much to, you know, rid myself of the idea that a commodity must be this uh, physical good and that you can actually have a digital one. Uh what was actually just more difficult was understanding the scarcity aspect of it because I also was a digital native and know how easy it is to uh, copy files, as does, I think, everyone who liked music near the year 2000. Um, so, yeah, I think I think it was just because I was already primed uh, to, to be in this sort of digital native and digital-centric world that, uh, you know, I was, I was open to digital goods mm. and what just to backtrack backtrack a little bit further what was the genesis or impetus for your development of let's say libertarian or anarcho-capitalist ideologies in the first place you know i understand <clears throat> once they were you know begun once they started to develop and you go down the road of of the austrians and gold and and ultimately bitcoin but what what was it about that philosophy in general that drew you to it in the first place, you know, potentially as a, a young, you know, like a teenager even? Yeah, I guess uh, sometime in middle school, I was, uh, I was really into a bunch of different, you know, professional magic and stuff. So I came across Penn and Teller and I watched a lot of their television show um, and uh, uh, Penn and Teller bullshit. And there were quite a few episodes that were, you know, from a very libertarian perspective, such as on like gun control and and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, that kind of that that primed me for, you know, being like, OK, yeah, I can I can see that point of view. Um, and I was, you know, mostly open to it. Um, but it wasn't until uh, I came across the Austrian school and got like this, you know, uh, you know, the foundational, you know, education on, you know, what, what human action is, what markets are, all of that, that it all really settled. And I, I went gung ho on that. And it's, it's not something that you got from your family, for example, like they're, they're, they're not. <laughs> no, no. My family is pretty apolitical. Right. And what about like your peer group when that started to happen? Because, you know, speaking from my own experience, <laughs> I was always the one that would try to bring up this subject matter in like social settings and basically just be dismissed and be like, you know, my friends would be like, come on, man, not tonight. Like we're trying to have a good time. Like we don't want you talking about like why paper money is worthless sort of thing, <laughs> you know, like that was, that was kind of me. And I'm just wondering uh, what your, you know, what your peers thought of uh, this philosophy and as it continued to develop all the way up to Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, I think I was always kind of the the odd one out with uh, a lot of the ideas I've had, but and I think this was probably a benefit with regards to Bitcoin. But I've always been um, comfortable having unpopular opinions um, and being a sort of you know iconoclast towards you know uh, things that people you know deeply hold. If I don't believe that there's uh, merit to those uh, beliefs, so uh, 
Yeah, I think, you know, I was, <laughs> I'm sure I annoyed plenty of people along the way, but I was never uncomfortable with holding my ground on um, a position just because it wasn't popular. Um, so, yeah. And I, yeah, I think that's maybe a character trait that a lot of people in Bitcoin almost necessarily have to have in order to persist to fully understand it and then, you know, maybe even become advocates for it. Um, so I understand that you, like when you were in university, there were, you were with some other Bitcoiners. Is that right? There was, was Pierre at university with you? Yeah. So this was at the University of Texas uh, at Austin. Um, yeah, uh, there was a group called Libertarian Longhorns. Uh, that was a lot of fun, a lot of good, you know, kind of Rothbardian and caps. And uh, I created a, a spinoff group called the Mises Circle, along with some, you know, friends from there. Uh, and that's where Pierre uh, found us. Um, I think through, you know, online or whatever. But you know, we 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 met there. Um, uh, along with like Daniel Krawitz and, you know, some of our other early Bitcoiners. And it was there that it was sort of, it quickly became the Bitcoin circle uh, because once you learn about Bitcoin, it's it's hard to want to talk about anything else. <laughs> and we were doing our best to try to uh, understand Bitcoin through the Austrian framework and uh, kind of develop that worldview and, and, you know, be in touch with the other people who kind of, you know, working on that, paradigm yeah you know I, i've like many probably listening i've read a lot of the stuff from uh the nakamoto institute and, and kudos again for all your work in in maintaining that and putting it together um but what one of the things that's striking i think you've written two pieces on the site is that right uh yes yeah and one of the things that's striking uh is that your conviction was so strong seemingly right from the get-go uh and i know it and you know it's been an interesting um narrative to come out of this year that it really seems like the 2020 bitcoiners fall very hard and fast and of course we have you know the kind of quintessential example in giga chat sailor but you know i've talked to uh, you know a number of uh 2020 bitcoiners on this show and uh i perhaps because of the dearth of, of content that's out there now. And there's so much quality, you know, writing and videos and podcasts that, you know, maybe it's easier to fall more quickly, but you know, like, I don't want to reiterate what we've already said, but I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm still curious, like what could have given you that level of conviction that early on, because in your writing, I mean, not only is it as, relevant today as it was back then but you know you're talking about kind of like the 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 absurdity of of parting with your bitcoin and the fact that everyone's a scammer and there's going to be myriad ways of people trying to get your bitcoin and you know you should hold this as hard as you can for as long as you can because the inevitable outcome is hyper bitcoinization like that's you know and that was 2013 uh, that one was yeah 2014 yeah like 2014 13 14 you were saying these sorts yeah. of things so like what I, I'm still curious, like, what was it that, that allowed you to have that level of conviction so early? Well, you know, at the time, it doesn't feel so early. Um, and I think, right, I think, right. I don't think there's a Bitcoiner except maybe Satoshi who didn't feel like he was late. <laughs> and even Satoshi may have felt like, man, I should have written this thing way earlier. So, yeah, it very well could be that there was never a single Bitcoiner, Bitcoiner who uh, did not feel late. Um, yeah. So that's something to keep in mind. Uh, but I think I think 
the important thing was having that strong Austrian foundation and being able to think through things uh, praxeologically um, instead of just purely based on kind of, you know, numbers, you know, that you see and, and charts and stuff like that. Uh, but also having the Austrian framework to be able to look at those charts and see what's happening. Um, you always need, this is an important concept uh, in, in Austrian economics that, you know, the, the theory uh, you know, a, a logical theory is needed to even make sense of the historical data that you're looking at. You have to, you have to have some, uh, a priori, uh, economic theory to guide your interpretation of that. So there were really just like, I I think a, a few key ingredients, you know, it's not like this just happens all at once, but, um, key ingredients that that form together that make you kind of uh, think along these lines, uh, one of which is considering that um, in a free market, uh, one money will tend to dominate. Um, and this is something that, you know, has been written route for a long time, like the very first section in uh, a theory of money and credit basically describes that. And in fact, the, the term money itself is describing the one good uh, that has the most liquidity. So by some definitions, depending on what group of people you're looking at, uh, Bitcoin isn't even quote unquote money yet. I would argue for Bitcoiners, it is money because uh, it is the the thing that is most liquid for us and you know that we would most uh, readily accept. So without sort of uh, government restrictions, people are just gonna choose you know whatever the good is that uh, enables, uh, the most, you know, economic use, um, you know, in, in our case, I think a lot of Bitcoiners, the, the biggest use case is, is savings, um, and liquidity begets liquidity. So another key thing was understanding that, uh, money operates sort of at, a, at an exponential rate. Um, so if you have a, a money, uh, you know, the original way that we were thinking about it was through Metcalf's law, uh, which was developed by Bob Metcalf to understand the value of, of a network as sort of the uh, square of the number of people involved in it. And the way that that's derived is saying, um, if you have if you have N people in a network, then you can have, uh, what is it? <laughs> I, I'm blanking on the, it's, I think it's N minus one times N, uh, divided by two um, possible links, which effectively boils down to n squared. Um, and so as you add an additional person, the value of that network increases exponentially. Um, I don't think that Metcalf's Law is the uh, best way to interpret Bitcoin anymore, but it was, it was a key thing in understanding just the exponential uh, kind of foundation of money. And so... What this means is if you have competing monies, you know, this kind of plays into the one money beats all because like one money will dominate Uh, as one grows exponentially. That means that another is necessarily decreasing exponentially. And when you look at all of the things that we know are valuable about money, um, these are things that, you know, are not are not just understood by Austrians, but pretty much anyone who's taken economics 101, you know, you get the divisibility portability, transportability, uh, you know, all, all of that kind of stuff, Bitcoin just outsh- outshines on all of those properties, um, you know, just based on, on you know, how the, how the technology works. 
you know, that's something you can see. And I think for a lot of like, <laughs> uh, mainstream economists, they, they don't see that in practice, but Bitcoiners and, you know, people like myself were able to look at it and know, yes, but that is what the net network is capable of. Um, so the point is like, if this thing exists and it's clearly better money, um, based on just the, the qualities that would be desirable in a money, um, then it is going to, you know, and we're actually empirically seeing it grow exponentially. There's no reason to believe that it won't continue to grow exponentially. And if it continues to grow exponentially, well, it's just going to win. It's going to, you know, uh, one day the dollar will not be able to compete anymore. So, you know, you kind of put all of those pieces together and, you know, <laughs> Bitcoin hasn't changed since. And if it's just continued on that exponential path. So, um, you know, my belief is it's going to continue. Has there been anything that stood out as surprising on this journey for you in relation to how Bitcoin has developed or, or continued its emergence onto the world? Um, you know, I think uh, the biggest I don't, I don't even want to say the biggest because I, I don't know. That's a, that's a really good question. I think one surprise I can share, um, especially from like 2020, is I don't know that I uh, or a lot of people really thought of the corporate balance sheet as this like kind of major part of Bitcoin's growth. And overnight, that changed. Like as soon as Michael Saylor and MicroStrategy made their announcement, it was just so glaringly obvious that yes, not only individuals, but literally anyone who has any, any treasury is going to be wanting to hold Bitcoin. Um, and so I think that fills in a big gap as to how do you get from individuals to kind of quote hyper Bitcoinization and, you know, potentially central banks holding it or, you know, the, the real geopolitical end games. That was like a great missing link um, that emerged that uh, I've been pleasantly surprised by. And I think it's massive. Yeah, I, th I think it's huge, too. And, you know, it's it, it maybe it shouldn't be surprising, right? Because money being what it is, is if you fuck with it, it fucks with everybody, you know, and it's a problem yeah. for everybody, whether you're a corporate, an individual, a government, whatever. And so perhaps it shouldn't be surprising, but I think it, it did. Uh, it is a, a, a totally massive thing. And what's interesting about that uh, development is how positively the markets have responded to that move. You know, so it's not like you know the markets generally thought you know poo pooed it and thought, well, how irresponsible you know Michael right. to do that move. I mean, his stock has been soaring since, and any stock that plugs into Bitcoin or announces that they're you know uh, accumulating Bitcoin in some way, the the markets reward them massively. So I think that's a, just a sign of things to come. In 2021, I imagine there's going to be a hell of a lot more of that stuff. Well, wasn't it Citibank that uh, demoted uh, MicroStrategy's credit rating? And since, you know, it's tripled in value? Yeah. But Citibank's also, didn't they publish the uh, like 300 plus price target for the end of 2021? I think Citi? so. Yeah, I think uh, they were doing like a bunch of TA voodoo and coming up with those numbers. <laughs> um, one of the things that that I think a lot of people experience when they they get into Bitcoin and they get it, it's just a tremendous excitement, right? Because especially for a lot of the people that maybe come from similar backgrounds to you and I, where uh, libertarian sort of philosophy and thinking that the world is kind of fucked up and and wondering and wishing that there was some way to improve it or change it. Um, and to have this thing come up and 
seemingly, you know, the more you learn about it and the more you learn about all the different, you know, ways in which money uh, operates and influences uh, the world, operates in the world and influences the world, you you begin to see the scale of the implications that that this thing represents. And you can't help but be excited by that, you know. And I think a lot of people uh, at some point want to be more involved in Bitcoin beyond just, you know, stacking sats. And I'm just curious, like when you find, when you got it, obviously you went ahead and you started to put together and maintain the Nakamoto Institute, but how did you deal with and or channel that excitement? Because uh, I think it's something we all face, whether, and I mean that in two ways, one kind of professionally, like if you you reorient your career or your life around uh, contributing or or working in this space and or, you know, your social life where it's hard, like you, I think you said it earlier, and I know we all feel it. I certainly do. It's hard to not talk about Bitcoin when you're at a social function because everything else seems so goddamn irrelevant. It's like you're just talking about nonsense. Why don't we talk about something important, relevant, with implications that you know that has uh, you know so much energy around it and hope for the future? So I'm wondering what that dynamic has been like for for someone like you who's been in it for so long and, and gotten it for so long. Um, I guess, could, could you like shorted the question again, like rephrase <laughs> it just to like, uh, yeah, right, how, I, I guess it was fold. like, how do you channel the excitement? Yeah, exactly. Basically. So how do you channel the excitement professionally and personally? There you go. So, uh, professionally, I mean, you know, uh, I think a lot of people, they get really excited about Bitcoin and then they think like, oh, I want to start a Bitcoin business or something like that. Um, the truth is, it's like, you know, uh, there aren't a lot of Bitcoin businesses. Um, a Bitcoin business is just a do- like, you don't call them dollar businesses. It's just, there just exist businesses that use a particular money. Um, so the actual uh, entrepreneurial uh, possibilities within Bitcoin, there are a lot, um, but it's not, it's, it's not necessarily as uh, great as you might initially think, like it's not, it's not necessarily easy enough to just like quit, quit what you're doing right now with your day job and go magically find a new day job. So, um, you know, I think, I think a lot of people, uh, find that difficult. Um, the good news is merely holding Bitcoins, uh, is doing something for Bitcoin by, uh, adding reserve demand, um, to the economy, which, you know, the hodlers of last resort are the ones who are setting the base price and restricting the supply and making number go up, which allows us to have all of the nice things that we imagine Bitcoin bringing. Um, so with that in mind, like it's, <laughs> you know, uh, I've been able, I've had the pleasure of, uh, working with some Bitcoin businesses on various stuff, but, you know, for professional life, I, I do what I can in Bitcoin. Um, but, you know, for the most part, it's, you know, trying to pay bills and, you know, perhaps stack some more sats as possible. Um, so, you know, professionally, I, I, if you can find something awesome, um, but I don't think that people need to, uh, you know, feel like they're not doing something to help the world just because uh, they work a day job. Because, you know, in the Citadels, we're also going to need electricians. So, <laughs> you know, having uh, cultivating those skills are just important uh, for the future as uh, these other things. So you don't work full time in, in Bitcoin, right? Uh, no, I, like I said, like I, I do a lot of contract work and, uh, you know, sometimes it's Bitcoin, sometimes it's not. So, um, 
I'm always happy to do Bitcoin work, but what what is it public? What kind of work you do? I mean, if it's private, you just tell me. But um, I, I think one of the public ones that I did, I I worked on an early version of Caravan French and Capital. Right. Um. So you know, I've 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 done stuff like that. And is is your day, uh, I also your I also job? worked at what public? is it? Is your day job public? Uh, it's it's contract work with. Yeah, it's just I I do a lot of web development stuff. Oh, okay. Okay. So. Cool. <laughs> I don't mean to pry too much. I'm just, you know, I'm curious what what Bistein does uh, with with all this time and all this experience and knowledge in this stuff. So it's interesting. You keep you keep one monitor up for work and one up for ship posting, <laughs> <laughs> and you get the life of Bistein. And, and you're involved in uh, a lot of the meat stuff too, right? Like, don't you? Did you? Is it just meat? Is that the website? Uh, Justmeat.co. Yeah. Right. So that's a resource for people that want to learn about the carnivore diet and that's yeah. It. I have a natural inclination. And one of the ways that I channel my energy um, is is uh, is like, uh, you know, just collecting the information that has helped me and share it with other people. Um, so that's what I've done, you know, with the Satoshi Nakamoto Institute. I went down the crypto anarchy, cypherpunk, uh, Bitcoin rabbit hole, and I wanted to produce something so that other people could understand that. And in particular, the sort of uh you know what people consider an edgier you know view of it uh is not lost uh, because you know back in 2013 um when i started it there was like a a big kind of push of like oh well you know bitcoin has a lot of libertarians right now but it's not libertarian and you know that'll kind of go away and you had people who were sort of um kind of bending over for the banking establishments, um, trying to, you know, get invited into the club kind of thing. Mm. And talking about, you know, cypherpunk stuff is not going to be as appealing to those types. Um, So creating the Nakamoto Nakamoto Institute as a repository for that um, stuff is a way to keep it alive. Um, And today, instead of having had to uh, go you know, beg for a seat at the table, it's kind of the other way around, in my view. Uh, I think, you know, Wall Street is having to contend with the fact that this thing was happening, despite the fact that all of them thought it was uh, completely, you know, idiotic. Mm-hmm. 100%. And by the way, uh, I love Caravan. It's an awesome resource. So, uh, you know, kudos to you and the team for for putting that together. But um, on that point, just quickly about, uh, you know, kind of collecting resources and, and, you know, leaving it there for people to find. With the the meat stuff, I think we know we mutual. You know, I had Sean Baker and Paul Saladino on the podcast before. Uh, I think you know Sean. I'm not sure if you're. Yeah, I've I've met both of them. Yeah, great guys. And um, you know, that's another rabbit hole in itself. And and diet and and health and fitness has always been a huge thing for me. And I've been you know, uh, I guess paleo for many many years. And in the last couple of years more interested in and reading about and learning about and experimenting with carnivore what what caused you to uh to get into that whole world uh i had gotten into paleo stuff back uh very early college um i had always kind of been skeptical of nutrition science uh rightfully so uh because you know they they were always changing their mind like are eggs healthy or are they not healthy it's clear you people don't know what you're talking about you're just making stuff up as you go. Um, and I was eating, 
you know, I, I grew up on junk food and, uh, you know, but I, I wasn't fat. I was very skinny. So I was like, okay, well, like I'm not getting fat now. I don't think that was, uh, going to be a good long-term solution for me. Uh, but my brain at the time, it was like, okay, like, come on guys, you're missing something. Um, what clicked was, you know, coming across paleo and having, uh, nutrition be described in an evolutionary sense, which in hindsight is also like rather obvious. Like, why wouldn't you, uh, be describing it in an evolutionary sense of like, you know, what did, you know, the caveman actually have access to and, you know, were able to, uh, you know, how would they eat? It's a very obvious question yet it, you know, kind of evaded uh, a lot of people, including myself. So that was a huge eye opener. And, um, I was, I was very interested in that and, you know, went along with it for a long time. I wasn't always good at following it necessarily, but it did make me question like anytime I put sweets or breads or whatever in my mouth, I was like, okay, well, like this isn't what I should be doing, but I'm, I'm doing it cause I enjoy it. Um, which itself I think is a, is a good mindset shift, but, um, Later on, I got it. I got interested in keto. Um, specifically, that started because of a video uh, of Zuko or Hearn. It's like just a five-minute video on keto, and uh, so I, I, of course, knew who Zuko was because he was, you know, in the sort of you know Bitcoin cryptocurrency space. And uh, I looked up his stuff and Amber O'Hearn, and uh, they were talking about keto. They were also talking about an all-meat diet. Like, oh, well, you want to do keto. The easiest way is just to eat an all-meat diet. And so that kind of, that just stuck with me as like, okay, like, that's interesting. And uh, sometime in 2015, uh, I kind of got interested in that again and really dove down down the rabbit hole. Uh, so I was reading, uh, you know, this isn't, you know, strictly carnivore or whatever, but I was reading Weston Price. Uh, I was reading Wilhelmer Stephenson, The Arctic Explorer, I read the forum posts of uh, uh, Owsley Stanley, uh, the the Grateful Dead uh, sound guy and LSD LSD manufacturer. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I read all of his forum posts, which was Was total trip. Uh, He was a carnivore for 50 years. What? Yeah. He, uh, yeah. (laughs) Go, uh, if you go on, if you go on Just Me, go check out his forum posts. That was probably like the, that was probably like the best red pill because you read through it and he, he just has an answer for everything. Now that doesn't mean that he actually knows everything, but it's like, okay, this guy, first of all, he's been doing it for that long. And assuming that he's telling the truth about that, why isn't he dead? Like that alone is a data point against the, this is going to kill you. Mm. Um, but the fact that he had an answer to everything also was just showing that like he had thought through all of this, which is to say, this wasn't just him waking up one day. It's like, I don't want to eat my vegetables. It's like, there was a lot of, of very compelling ideas uh, motivating that, you know, he read Wilhelmer Stephenson and uh, uh, eat fat and grow slim. I think was the name of the book that uh, McCarnus or something like that from the early fifties, you know, he read that and he was basically the stuff I was reading and he just went down the rabbit hole all the same. And yeah, he did it for 50 years. And, um, the funny thing is there's a lot of stuff that he said that 
he doesn't really provide evidence, which I think would drive a lot of people insane in today's world uh, because everyone is uh, is obsessive about a particular view of what science is. Um, but what a lot of the carnivores over time. So there was a there. I, I also was reading a lot of forums. There are these forums on, you know, mostly like Facebook at the time um, called like, you know, zeroing in on health and some others where all these people were doing this and talking about, you know, how much better they felt and some, you know, pretty miraculous uh, health improvements. And um, anyway, like a lot of the sort of lore that came out of these forums um, and sort of, uh, I don't know, like best practices, they ended up mirroring uh, what Owsley had said. Um, so it's like, you know, Owsley was going by his personal experience. It was, you know, obviously a very N equals one kind of thing. Mm. Um, cause I don't think there were a lot of hippies listening to him, uh, <laughs> as he was trying to tell them like, okay, like once you're down from your trip, you're going to want to eat a lot of ribeyes. Um, <laughs> so yeah, like I get the sense that like he, he just knew from personal experience, a lot of things that have been sort of corroborated by uh, a lot of other people's personal experience. Um, so, you know, certain things around, uh, you know, eating a lot of fat um, uh, and e even things like uh, salt. He, he was against salt, and I don't know that he was correct about that per se, but I have noticed, for instance, that there are a lot of carnivores who, after quite a while, uh, reduce their salt intake a lot. Um, so the fact that he was talking like, you know, it wasn't like, it, it wasn't uncommon for a lot of people to not be eating salt is kind of my point here. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, he's very interesting and I highly recommend uh, if you're interested in that topic, uh, reading into his, his stuff. But yeah, it was just a huge rabbit hole uh, and I go down it and, you know, I, I tried it. I just haven't gone back because it just, you know, I just feel better. So are you kind of strict discipline on the diet? Uh, pretty much, yeah. I, I, I don't have any cravings for other food, um, and I don't have a compelling reason to be incorporating other foods, so I, do you I go just the, don't. Do you go the nose-to-tail route like uh, Dr. Paul Saladino suggests, or is it more just kind of steaks for every meal? Um, I've done a lot of steaks, uh, but I've, I've eaten a lot of organs as well. I'm not, I'm not opposed to it. I think, uh, you know, so, some people have done very well without any organs. Mm -hmm. Um, some people, you know, like Paul Saladino, he, he swears by them. Um, so I don't, I don't, I actually don't know if there's a correct answer. Um, there are some organs that I like, um, you know, like liver and stuff like that. It's kind of an acquired taste, but yeah. after a while you get used to it and start to enjoy it. Yeah, for sure. And I, I appreciate the work that uh, the emergence of uh, Saladino on the scene, because he's so detailed in in the way he articulates his his knowledge about this stuff. But why, why do you think, because it's become kind of a thing in the Bitcoin space, right? Like, you know, being a carnivore, why do you think that's taken hold? Is it just because it's another sort of potential truth that's been incredibly clouded by the misinformation of, you know, science slash mainstream media over the last 50 plus years or is it you know just kind of trendy like why do you think this is being adopted by so many people in yeah. particular in the bitcoin space i mean that's like that's what i want to think is that it's just you know it's it's another truth being um 
kind of uh, uncovered. I think there are some like tribal aspects to it of just, you know, it's kind of in-group signaling, you know, right. part of the part of the team or whatever. But that being said, like, I, I do think that there's, uh, you know, a lot of truth uncovered. I think our uh, nutrition policy in uh, this country has been so bad for so long uh, due to government intervention. So I think... I think you're, you know, well familiar with, uh, you know, WTF happened in 1977, um, you know, with the uh, George McGovern and the the first dietary guidelines from the uh, USDA. And, you know, that has an effect on science. It has an effect on where government money goes, what gets studied, uh, what gets promoted, all of that. And I think that leads to a distorted uh, scientific paradigm um, and distorted. I, I actually don't like the term scientific consensus, but it actually forces a sort of scientific consensus um, that doesn't necessarily have the actual justification a lot of people um, think it has. And so... Yeah, I think, you know, as people kind of, they they give this thing a shot, you know, it's like, why would you ever put your money in a bunch of, like, magic internet numbers, um, and yet you do it, and number goes up, and everyone's like, no, you're an idiot, and yet you're sitting there like, well, number goes up. Um, the same thing with, uh, you know, meat. It's like, you just try it, and it's like, oh, you're going to get scurvy. And it's like, well, I don't have scurvy, and I feel better. So I'm just going to continue doing this. And I think enough people do that and you start to notice the patterns among people and you start to, you know, uh, experience it yourself. Um, it's, it's a very, like, it's, it's not a, you know, ideal scientific process. Ideally, we'd have all kinds of great trials, but no one has the balls to actually do it. You know, thank God for uh, Sean Baker uh, trying to, finally get together some serious uh, carnivore uh, clinical trials. Um, but because we don't have, you know, uh, access to the government spigot uh, to fund science, you know, the best we can do is just like, well, I tried this thing, share online, here are the results, and then other people have it. And you have these just very uh, replicable results. You know, I was helping Sean Baker with meatheels.com for quite a while. Um, and I was, I was seeing all of the submissions come in and it was almost like boring at a point where it's like, okay, yeah, of, of course you fixed that issue. That's <laughs> like, yeah, that's what happens. And so when, as, as like from a scientific point of view, when you start to see that pattern, you know, those are observations. It leads to a hypothesis. And now you want to test that hypothesis. And if someone has the hypothesis that, oh, it'll it'll help me lose weight, um, and then they give it a try and they lose weight, well, they certainly didn't falsify the hypothesis. They may have not been totally correct as to why they lost weight, but they certainly did not falsify the hypothesis that eating an all-meat diet will help weight loss. And so there is this sort of rough distributed science going on um, and because it's, it's not as, uh, rigorous as we could have if we had more, uh, you know, trials, uh, being done by, by trained scientists, uh, you know, it's a little messier and it gets caught up in the in-group signaling, but I do think that's a strong part of it. And, um, 
you know, it's not, it's not like it's just Bitcoiners. It's not just like a Bitcoin-only cult kind of thing. This is something that's happening just in the same way it's happening all over the world. People from all different backgrounds have, have uh, done this and found tremendous improvement in their, in, uh, their health as well as just, you know, general lifestyle. Um, and so, you know, Bitcoiners being uh, how they are, they're going to latch on to these things. Um, the body is capital. And if you start to develop a low time preference, uh, then you're going to want to maintain your capital. And it's like, well, how do I maintain my capital? Well, I need to give it the inputs that it needs. You don't put you don't put just like any industrial sludge into your car. You put oil, like you know, gasoline into it. In the same way, if you want a well running human body, uh, you need to put certain inputs into it, and you don't want to just like guzzle, you know, soylent or whatever. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I also think to the extent that there is a relationship between, you know, Bitcoiners and this approach to diet, I think it's just another one of the amazing uh, outcomes of truth being brought to money, right? Because money is that primary, you know, organizing or coordinating mechanism in society. I mean, it, it touches everything. And when you realize the corruption of the the, the old money, the, the money that is on its way out, uh, then you begin to understand how the corruption of the money corrupts a lot of the other things that uh, it's used to transact in or to you know produce or whatever. And so I think one of the the big things about Bitcoiners is that they get you know whether they see the matrix or put on the orange, orange colored glasses or whatever uh, you know metaphor you want to use. It's that once they realize how influential money is in everything, then once they've 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 discovered the corruption of the old money and discovered the truth of the new money. I think now they they forced to look in all areas of their life and say, how has this corrupt money and the institutions and the structures and the companies and everything else that you know is predicated on that corrupt money? What kinds of things has that produced that I'm engaging in my life that are not serving me, or 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 you know I could be engaging in something else more optimally or more to my benefit? And I think that's part of the reason why we see this trend toward, you know, radical, let's say, self-reliance, responsibility, self-improvement amongst Bitcoiners, because you look out on the world and you're seeing it with far greater clarity, but you're also saying, I need to look at it with fresh eyes and, and, and more consciously engage in whatever it is I'm engaging in the world. And it's a subject that I really like digging into, the, the kind of phenomenon of, of behavior change as a result of grokking Bitcoin. Yeah, that's a really good point. And as you were saying that, I was thinking about how um, it's actually very common for people to talk about how, oh, we'll just follow the money, you know, and it's like the money and the politics and uh, all of that. You have people, you know, oh, just, you know, they're, they're critiques of big pharma. You know, I have my critiques of big pharma. And in a way, they're very similar. because It's like, you know, oh, the money. Um, but outside of Bitcoin, or I should say outside of sort of the, uh, you know, sound money paradigm, um, you know, whether it's Austrians or Chicago school or whatever, um, outside of that, you know, they just follow it. They still live in this like very political mindset where it's like, oh, well, you know, big farmers is getting poisoned by money. So we need the government to come in and fix it, you know, in some way, you know, we got to vote in the right people or you know, whatever their their plan of action is going to be, but it tends to be very political. Um, whereas I think the 
Bitcoin or mindset tends to be uh, more powerful, uh, including for the individual, because it's individual focused and it gets to the heart of things where it's like, yeah, but it's the government money itself. Uh, it's, it's not even just that money is flowing, it's the money itself uh, is, is corrupting. And our position is this individual exit. And so it does take on uh, that you know individual mindset, which I think a lot of the political stuff comes from a desire to want to be doing these big, you know, grand collective active uh, stuff. Whereas, yeah, like Bitcoiners are totally fine just imagining For the cultural reasons, like obviously not exclusively, but it will be one of the big factors because, you know, you'll see basically society kind of crumbling around us and everywhere you look. And then over here, you've got a group of people that are optimistic, are hopeful, are taking care of themselves, are successful, are healthy, you know, have strong community bonds, have strong family bonds. And I think, you know, and all the other things that, that Bitcoiners are expressing through themselves at the moment and, and increasingly, I think people will look at that and be like, well, fuck, that looks like a pretty goddamn, you know, good group of people to be a part of. Like, I, yeah. I, I want a piece of that, you know? Yeah. And you can have number go up while you're yeah. at it. That's incredible. I like, mean, what, a, what a deal. It's like a dream, right? <laughs> Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the great things about Bitcoin is, uh, you know, I, I've i argued in the past that it's, like, inherently libertarian, inherently anarchist. I have a talk from early 2014 um, talking about how, you know, Bitcoin is an experiment in anarchy. I don't not believe that, um, but I also don't think that someone needs to, you know, explicitly be desiring some, like, radical anarchist uh you know, uh, political system in order to uh, want the benefits of Bitcoin. And the reason I bring that up is that, you know, Bitcoin is big tent, you know, it's, it's literally for everyone. I tweeted that today, you know, Bitcoin is for everyone. And I mean that sincerely. Um, so, you know, yeah, there's a lot of Bitcoin carnivores. There are some Bitcoin vegans. I have no problem with them doing whatever they want to do. Uh, I, I, I have very uh, little expectation that a, a Bitcoin vegan is going to force me to um, partake in their lifestyle choices just as much as I don't think any of them, um, I hope none of them would imagine that I would be forcing them to uh, partake in mine. Um, so in that case, like it is really just big tent. It's like it, it resets some of the just kind of fundamental values around money and time preference. And there's a whole gazillion different ways um, that that can manifest itself in, um, you know, uh, uh, a social setting, you know, within communities and stuff. So, you know, anyone, you know, you, you don't have to agree 
uh, with everyone's point of view in order to benefit and have camaraderie and then find, you know, your, your specific tribe of sorts. So, you know, on the noted podcast, we've, we've had episodes with the Bitcoin rabbi. We've talked about Bitcoin and Judaism. We just recently had one about Bitcoin and Christianity. I'm sure one day we'll have, you know, an imam come on and, you know, talk Bitcoin and Islam, um, and so on and so forth. Um, there's just room for everyone. It's just like these these very fundamental things of like you will not print more money, you cannot print more money, and uh, you will lower your time preference. <laughs> yeah, those are sort of the 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 big two rules, and then people can go from there. Yeah, um, and share ideas with one another on you know how how they've best uh, made use of these uh, decision making tools. I couldn't agree more with that. I mean, to, to me, Bitcoin is about freedom and, you know, it's up to each individual to determine what that means for them. You know, like uh, I, I think if it, more, among other things, I think, you know, freedom is about, you know, curiosity and exploration and possibility and potential. And, and you know, so people will explore different avenues of each of those things and, and come to their own conclusions. And I think it's awesome. Like I can't, I'm so pumped for, you know, what this looks like in 20, 30 years. I don't want to, I'm not wishing my time away, but like, I just knowing, or I feel like I have an under, a reasonable understanding of how the money influences individuals. And as a result, you know, the society and the structures and the institutions and the culture that emerge on top or among those individuals as, or as a result of individuals attempting to interact with one another. And uh, I mean, I, I just, I can't wait to see it. And I, I, I often, talk about it in terms of like as as funny as it may sound and actually this is a brilliant segue into the next thing but you know bitcoin twitter is kind of a little window into that you know uh emerging culture and uh um a lot of people it's funny you know i find it funny that people encounter it and get turned off by it you know and i think most of the time that's because they're too close-minded or their ego is getting in the way or they're not trying enough to see past the the veneer of of toxicity or or whatever they're interpreting but uh you know this is really this is it it's it's growing out from here and uh we're we're getting to interact with it and observe it uh in real time and it, and it's really cool and a part of that this is a segue is uh, all the memes that that this space conjures up and uh nicely done john <laughs> thank you <laughs> and i think uh, you're considered a bit of a meme master and i i think if i recall correctly the 21 ism guys uh, wanted me to touch on this so i'm ticking all the boxes here but uh why don't you tell me uh your how you first entered the foray into understanding the impact of memes and then becoming someone who who creates uh, some dank memes themselves well, if we go back, you know, tell you about my first, no. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of funny. Uh, just <laughs> to even talk about memes is kind of funny. Because um, it's, it, it's, it's in many ways just absolutely ridiculous. Um, but it's yeah, so... like where to start? Like, right. look, so my, my view of things is that memetics is just a fancy term for rhetoric. Um, a lot of people think memes in terms of the uh, very specific media that have been used. So like tweets, you know, uh, phrases, you know, especially like very short snippy phrases, like run the numbers and number go up and have have fun staying poor um, is a fun one that's emerged um, or videos 
or image macros. So, you know, back in the day, like the word meme was uh, always used specifically for those image macros where you have like success kid, you know, the little baby, or you have like Velociraptor or whatever. Um, but, you know, the I, I think that kind of opened people up to kind of these new ways of internet communication where it's like you can pack a lot of message into very small um bits you know a small number of bits can can convey a lot you know they say you know a picture uh is worth a thousand words and i think the internet has learned that um to its extreme and so uh the imagery that people are able to express themselves with um has become more and more complex more and more interesting um you know back in my day um in high school you know pepe uh the the notorious pepe was just the feels bad man or feels good man frog you know it was like it was just this but it was funny at the time like it was it was still a cultural force but now, if you look at the internet landscape and just the complexity of Pepe's, it's absurd. Um, and people have really like layered on these different human emotions into this. Uh, the same with, you know, uh, Pepe's friend Wojak, you know, the the feels guy. Um, just the absolute, um, like I said, like complexity of what can be conveyed in these things that people are able to quickly understand. You know, a a well crafted uh, meme like that, it just it it penetrates deep. And so, you know, uh, very popular in Bitcoin circles was like the money printer go burr that had the like the Zoomer pe- uh, Pepe and the Boomer Pepe like all in one. I mean, not Pepe, a uh, Wojak like all in one that's so far and removed from the just original drawing of Wojak um, because we've been able to express like, you know, this, these like archetypes, I think of, of a lot of those kind of imagery memes, uh, whether it's like the, the Chad and Virgin or the Wojak, the Pepe or, you know, whatever. Um, a lot of those are sort of like these, they, they display a lot of archetypes, of just the human experience and it's just this it's this blank slate that you can project all of these different uh you know facets of the human experience on and so it's just amazing medium uh to be able to convey so much information in just a such such a small space it's just this little dot jpeg um can can change someone's life so i think when you know when when people think rhetoric I think they think in terms of Cicero standing up and giving a long speech or the Lincoln Douglas debates. Like let's sit down for six hours and listen to two guys argue about, you know, whatever the hell. Um, And the internet has accelerated that into here's this image that is on the one hand, very funny. On the other hand, it is describing something so profound that in that moment that you see it, your life has changed. Mm. You know, I think as soon as Printer Go Burr gets into your head, you can't unsee that Printer Go Burr. And so it's just like supercharged rhetoric. Do you think this is a like a trend toward how, like an emerging trend of how humans will increasingly communicate in a, in a digital environment? 
Um, you know, that's an interesting question. I know a lot of people have joked that uh, we're kind of going back to hieroglyphics and maybe hieroglyphics are actually like... Maybe that's a, what they were. Maybe it's like a higher form of communication. Um, I don't know. I, I actually, I tend to believe that uh, text is always going to be the most uh, kind of foundational medium, <laughs> like medium of exchange, store of value uh, of knowledge, because text is something that uh, you can put down. And when you come back to it, no matter how far into the future, you'll be able to pick it back up. Like ASCII characters will never not be readable by a computer. Um, and if you wanted to, it, it can be really difficult to store a video file for 50 years and know that it'll st still be opened in 50 years. Uh, I always think of the, the South Park episode where Cartman freezes uh, because he wants to get the Nintendo Wii and then he wakes up, but it's like 500 years later, and they find a Nintendo Wii at uh, some museum, but they have no way to connect it to the TV, so he can't actually play it. He can only look at it. Um, <laughs> and I think a lot of just human knowledge is going to be like that, where you know it's going to get stuck in types of forms that uh, they may have worked really well uh, right now, but they're not necessarily uh, built to last uh, for eternity. Um, so... For those things, I think, you know, text is going to be king, but for the ephemeral discussion, I mean, I've had discussions with people that are frankly just like a bunch of uh, meme pictures in succession, and we're both, we're actually having like a deep conversation in a way. <laughs> so on the ephemeral level, yes, that might actually be um, a powerful thing, and I think it also... Um, can scale very well because it, it, you know, if you if you get down to the archetype, you know, an archetype is going to be something that uh, is is more broadly understood um, and readily accessible. So, um, you know, I, I would expect that um, text memes, uh, in terms of you know books and long form uh, communication, is always going to be the ultimate long term. That's what people are going to still be seeing in five hundred, a thousand years. Um, but image images are very good for the uh, highly condensed ephemeral uh, dialogue. Yeah, I mean, I consider Bitcoin to be a profound sense of truth. And, and sometimes I wonder if all this memeing is just attempts at communicating different aspects of that truth uh, with, so, you know, the communicating the most truth and requiring the least amount of bandwidth to do so. So the like kind of the highest density of truth in a form of communication. And because Bitcoin, you know, has so many different aspects and angles to it, I think that's why you get this kind of like explosion of people trying to interpret what it is and then communicate that interpretation through memory. And, you know, some of them really, really hit and stick. And I guess that's because they've communicated something fundamental to let's say bitcoin or what it represents in an incredibly you know dense uh you know low bandwidth requirements sort of way and that i think that's part of the reason why they stick in so much they become a splinter in your mind right right yes so i i agree and i think that like all rhetoric is this i mean i think all communication is this like you know any anytime you're trying to explain uh, something to s someone else, you're having to take that idea in your head, condense it into some 
you know, string of information to go into that other head in the hopes that it will like, uh, get, um, you know, decompressed into the thing that you were thinking. But we all know, like, there's just so much complexity in anything that uh, you're always going to have lossy compression. Right. And so, uh, yeah, but we, we do have this, like, very high-density thing. Um, now, something I would say, once again, like, why I think sort of long-form text would still remain king is, like, well, like, it's great to say number go up, run the numbers, et cetera, but uh, it might be... Le- more challenging to like how, well how do you how do you explain to someone 500 years in the future that concept like you you can't just write down run the numbers and someone will pick up the book you know the, they're they're like finally uh crafted physical tweet put out by like penguin classics um <laughs> i wonder when there will be a penguin classics of uh bitcoin twitter um you know, Oxford University Press, you know, Modern Library, whatever, like the whole thing. Need, But, um, you know, the person 500 years from now, when they open that up, if they just see run the numbers, they might not quite understand that. Um, so I think people are going to like, y- you do have to kind of uh, change the compression level depending on the audience and the time frame. Um, that being said, there are, you know, different aphorisms and, you know, uh, proverbs and stuff like that, that, you know, they are these timeless chunks of wisdom that span the ages and maybe, you know, run the numbers, uh, will kind of craft into one of these proverbs that will always kind of be repeated throughout time. And people continue to understand, uh, what it meant. Um, even if they, you know, have no clue, like they don't know that this was originally like, well, that came out of like this, like tweet from Stefan Lavera that was replying to so-and-so about this. And he was like, you know, Bitcoin fixes this and it, you know, goes on. It'll just be that it's like, well, uh, a Bitcoin proverb is that Bitcoin fixes this. <laughs> yeah. But I think it could totally be that. I mean, the the thing, the, the corollary or the, the example that comes to my mind is like, in Taoism, I think the the, pro, the proverb is uh, using no way as the way, right? And like you you read that and you're like, you might think, well, what the fuck does that mean? And you could read a whole thousand page book about like the philosophy behind that. Or you might be able to intuitively sort of interpret that if your own internal framework and your own contemplation has gotten you so far and you read that and it just strikes you as true when you read it, you know? So yeah, who knows how, how yeah, these could, these like little phrases we have may very well be the sort of long-term form um, where it's like every generation is rediscovering what that meme even meant. Where yeah. it's like everyone has that that next generation has the the reawakening of like ah yes we must run the numbers and I think that's <laughs> part of the fun of these beams because they're they're put out often in this like very generalized way so like oh yeah Bitcoin fixes this and it quickly expands into uh, yeah Bitcoin literally fixes everything uh, which is half absurd but like half kind of truthful in the sense of we know how deep money runs in the human coordination system so. Uh, but there, but there is this like revelation. I think about it all the times where like I'm having a discussion with someone and I'm like, yeah, you got to run the numbers, don't you? You know, it's like, you know, some, some completely off topic and like has nothing to do with Bitcoin at all, but it's just this revelation of like, yeah, if I really want to get to the bottom of this thing, I need to run the numbers. (laughs) And so 
Yeah, it actually like maybe these will really will become uh, the proverbs of the future. Um, these very uh, short snippets. You'll have, uh, you know, a bat toilet have, book with all that. <laughs> you'll have you'll have like uh, you know religious leaders a thousand years from now uh, giving sermons uh, to you know, their, their Martian congregation and they'll just, you know, get up and they'll say, have fun staying poor. And then they'll sit back down and it'll, you know, people will like be, wow, like, wow, this guy <laughs> changed start my crying. life. Yeah. The philosophy classes will start inter- interpreting these things, but you know, it's, it's, what does it mean to have fun staying poor? <laughs> uh, one of the, but I think Bitcoin is generating novel memes uh, for one or one reason, because I think when you have a, a form of non-negotiable truth like Bitcoin, like it is what it is, regardless of your belief. And in the context of like human rhetoric and communications and stuff, like so much of our discourse for, I guess, all of human history has been kind of open-ended questions and or political discourse. Like, so it's... Yeah. it's it's a requirement for me to persuade you of something if I want something to happen, you know, and that's no more apparent than today in the, the hyper nation state environment that we find ourselves in and the absolute absurd political landscape that uh, seemingly, you know, is attempting to uh, control, you know, the world these days and people's lives uh, and doing a, unfortunately, you know, good job in, in that level of control right now. But, you know, Bitcoin is that thing that, that, totally negates that it's it's going to be and and maybe this is another you know true uh or another aspect of truce is that they are what they are just you know despite your belief or despite your your opinion about them and i think that gives all the people on the side of that truth and in, in this case bitcoin so much more uh like confidence and pomp and and right. and gusto because like you can be in an argument with someone and I don't have to convince you of the merits of Bitcoin to you just say have fun staying I can poor just say have fun staying poor <laughs> and you can go yeah. about your day I go about mine and you know nothing is going to change you know yeah we should all admire uh, you know Galileo for the you know and so it moves uh, or it still moves you know right um, you know. Uh, yeah, like <laughs> you, I, I, th- I think you're really so onto something. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think you're you're really onto something there. Uh, that uh, yeah, and I, I think that's kind of I, I think that's part of the essence of the have fun saying poor. By the way, is just this thing of like, look, we already figured this out. Uh, we don't have to have this discussion anymore. Like you, like everyone just having this collective awakening. It was like I do not need to convince you. This thing really is happening. I do not need to convince you. It is your job to come on board with me. Um, and uh, there's there's actually like many different ways you can uh, interpret have fun staying poor. And I think that's part of the fun of have fun, having fun staying poor, <laughs> because you know someone someone also pointed out that it's a it's a way to jab at the um, sort of uh, the intellectual elite of today you have all of these these uh and not even just intellectual you have these businessmen you have economists you have uh you know wall street guys it's just like this whole slew of people um who all you know shit on bitcoin and they have you know uh they they are so stuck with the status quo that 
they just they continue to go with it and we see that the tides are changing and we're saying it's like look like have fun staying poor and they might not feel like they're poor now but if you were to continue down that road and not come over and bitcoin does what we say it's going to do which it will um then you are going to find that you do not have the the wealth and status and all of that that you thought you did and i i hope that you you know enjoy what you still have afterwards because it's all you're going to have yeah and you know we're, we're literally doing what we were just joking about future philosophy philosophy classes doing but like it's also about you know on an intellectual level you know like you, you, you might tell Mark Cuban or you might tell Rubini or some academic to have fun staying poor, you know, and it still works with them because they're, yeah. you know, they're, they're having fun staying poor, not understanding, not grokking, you know, the implications of Bitcoin and what it means and all the And then I think low time fire. preference implies uh, living below your means. And so there's also like, you know, even someone who's who's uh, foregoing luxuries to stack sets, that person's having fun staying poor. So it's like it is a, is a very intricate thing that you can you can actually project anything you want onto it, and that's which is also what makes meme. a good meme. Yeah, because, right. uh, you know, anyone can believe, you know, whatever they want about it. Um, and it's funny how you get people who want to like tone police around the different memes. So like have fun staying poor. Um, one person might view it as a very, um, it's like, oh, it's, it's like shameful not to be a rich person. It's like, I don't think there's a Bitcoiner who shames anyone for not being rich. The whole, the whole thing here is like, we want everyone to be rich. Um, and we want you to not, uh, be, you know, brought down by forces that are outside of your control anymore. Um, so, like, people have these interpretations. But it's like, oh, that's only one way of looking at it. That's the way that you chose to look at it. But that's exactly what I mean when I say, like, people will come in. And even, I mean, because I, I don't know if this was who you're referring to, but I saw Andreas say something about, like, you know, what a disgusting, you know, phrase or meme or something recently. And I didn't read the whole thread, but I, I, I'm pretty sure I remember him saying that. And I'm just, it's surprising to me that some people can't see what, what what we're articulating here now. Like they think it's some sort of like genuine, nasty insult to bring other people down or something. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, which it's, is also funny because we also like all collectively cheer when we see that uh, Nigerians are using uh, Bitcoin to uh, protect themselves from the corrupt banks. Uh, right now and what happens in venezuela like it's just it, it's it's incongruent re- with reality to think that bitcoiners actually have some uh disdain for the very people that we're explicitly trying to help totally i mean it, it it's 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 yeah it's fun and it's communication and it's all part of this crazy noise and i i wrote in an article recently like when when you get down to it like i've never been a part of a community where people are you know more you know, basically fun, supportive, and like, there's a lot of love in this community, you yeah. know, and people you, like, you just have to show up a certain way, you know, be honest, you know, be yourself, be open-minded, you know, don't lie, don't scam, like all just kind of good values. And, uh, and Pierre know, has, uh, Pierre has, has talked about this before of like, you know, with, with, especially with Twitter, but really, I, I think 
kind of anything in life, you get in, you, you get out what you give in or right. you're taken or whatever. So it's like, you know, if you go in with like a nasty attitude, well, yeah, you're going to have like a nasty perception of everything. Um, but if, yeah, you come in with an open mind, uh, you're going to, you're going to be able to see the, the joy in the memes, the, the sort of, uh, you know, <laughs> Buddhist cone aspect of it, where like, it doesn't even mean anything. <laughs> it just means whatever you want it to mean. Um, it's kind of up to you to come in with the right attitude. Um, something you said earlier about like these insurmountable truths. There's also this kind of debate of whether or not Bitcoin is a religion. And I see arguments from both sides. I prefer to think of it as a religion because I'm hoping that we can all not have to pay taxes. Um, although I guess Pierre has pointed out that um, this is already the case because you only pay taxes when you, uh, when you sell. Um, so, <laughs> But exactly. um, people people have used that as sort of a denigration of Bitcoin. Um, other people like you know find the joy of like yeah no it actually is a religion. Um, I'm I'm not trying to to make a point uh, for one side or another on that that debate, but I do think that that is perhaps an analog that I don't think I've seen anyone talk about um, where I think in a lot of religions. Uh, what it is, is dealing with these insurmountable truths of like, this is what creation is. You better stand in awe before the creator because you don't want to get ruined by this thing. Um, and because like this thing is greater than yourself. Um, and I think Bitcoin instills the same attitude where, um, it's like, we've all seen people get screwed by Bitcoin in all kinds of different ways. There's been people who they lost their keys. Uh, there's been people who uh, got hacked, got scammed. Uh, you know, the people who didn't put in their seed phrase uh, in the place they should have, they, they put it into an online computer and then it got slurped up by a hacker. You've seen people uh, pay fees that are way higher then should have been paid, you know, like a hundred dollar, I'm sorry, hundred Bitcoin fee on a one Bitcoin transaction, you know, that kind of stuff was, was happening back in, back in the day. Um, not as often anymore as people learn, but it does force you to stand back and look at this day is like, <laughs> do not fuck with Bitcoin, <laughs> you know, uh, cause it will fuck you <laughs> and you have to develop this, this fear of it, this fear of the insurmountable truth. But if you also feel like you are living in line with that truth, you know, it's like you've created a sacred ritual around private keys. Mm -hmm. You've created, uh, you know, a, a defense mechanism against scammers by just saying everyone's a scammer, um, all of these, all of these things, then you can also be a confident warrior for Bitcoin. Um, so I do wonder if that has that, that's one of the analogs of kind of a religious attitude that people see in Bitcoin. Um, that honestly is a great thing and should not be used to denigrate. And it should also not be, it doesn't need to be, uh, you know, lowering, lowering, uh, the status of religion for those who, who do, um, hold particular religious beliefs. Um, I think it's just, it is a very interesting phenomenon in humans. Um, yeah. 
I think it's a natural phenomenon when you have something that is unchanging, that is immutable, right? Like you are forced to play by its rules, not the other way around. And so, and when you have something like that, I think it naturally sets the hierarchy of values, right? Just by being what it is. And so you, so I think a a hierarchy of values develop around that and people begin to interpret or extract what they are. And they, you know, because that thing is so unchanging, you kind of have to be the one to transform when it's impossible for it to, you know, in in certain certain of its immutable ways. And so I think that's part of the reason why we see, you know, changes instilled in people. And I think that, like you're saying, the same thing operates on a religious level. Now that, that immutable uh, belief is, is, or that, immutable system, let's say, is predicated on a belief and then a hierarchy of values kind of gets developed uh, around it, whereas yeah. Bitcoin is a far more verifiable form of immutability. Where, and to like, be clear, I think, I think you know, plenty of religious people would, would disagree with that characterization. Um, you know, that there's what? Uh, well, like, I mean, there's, there's plenty of, of people who I think, um, you know, they have a, a genuine belief in the same way that I have genuine beliefs about Bitcoin, that there are, are logical um, bases for uh, believing in in a God. So yeah, I, I, I can see that. I guess I just I just mean that you can't. <laughs> it's tricky, much more it's much more difficult to do independently. Um, the the mathematics of Bitcoin is much more raw and accessible than uh, the the logic. Uh, of of some religious beliefs because right. sometimes like even just people's uh yeah I, I don't know it's just like it can be harder for people to be you know accepting of that and i'm not i i i don't personally have any any strong religious convictions uh but i do think that uh you know i i, I do want to give a shout out to the, the people who do you know believe that uh yeah, you know, there, there's. <laughs> I know what you're saying. It's 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 a tangly landscape, and I don't think we. It's want very to tangly. That, that, uh... Well, and then you you also you also think like there are people who, um, you know, as as obvious as Bitcoin is to us, you know, you can have the Paul Krugmans of the world or whatever the Nuriels, they come in and they can't see the same logic. Right. So uh, I'm at least open minded to believe that there's there are, there are other things in the world that I am uh, sort of. F- my my understanding of the logic is is foggy enough, well, um, and it's a good you know humility to have. I think I, I totally to agree. Have. But I actually think that this is one of the like this is the power of belief, and I think one of the you know, and this could actually be kind of a, like maybe the metaphysical territory of truth, like the degree to which you what your belief is, is actually true, maybe what determines your success or failure in the realm of existence sort of thing. You know, so if you, because like you're just saying, you can believe something to be true, but if it's not, then, you know, that you've, you've predicated much of your, who you are and your belief in your life on a false, something false. And that, that can mean that everything on which you've predicated it can fall apart or can lead to destruction or can lead to bad outcomes or whatever. So, you know, and, and you made me think of that when you mentioned, you know, Krugman, because I, I think, you know, probably at least in the economic realm, what he believes is, is not true. And I think, you know, the concepts and the, 
what we you know what we talk about in the bitcoin space around economics and money is more akin to a form of truth and i think you know the because i love studying religions and have speaking with people that have religious beliefs and trying to understand their interpretations and you know kind of how how their belief functions under the hood um but i i do think that is a critical piece in that you know your your success or failure because belief is so strong belief constructs you know your reality basically and it doesn't you don't necessarily have to be believing in truth you can be you know you can delude yourself into anything and believe it with the same conviction that you know anyone else might believe in something that's actually true and Mm -hmm. i think the degree to which that occurs or I, i think that's the determinant of of your success however you know i don't know how we define that whether it's happiness or some other some other fulfillment meaning some other metric but you know i almost think like that's kind of how reality works like to the extent that you believe your belief is aligned with truth you quote unquote succeed and to the extent that what your what your belief is 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 a falsehood or yeah i think the i think the assumption there is just you know whether or not you believe that there's uh an objective truth um right and of course like given there's an objective truth how close that person's conception of truth is to that, mm-hmm. um, which is a hairy topic that I'm I, I'm not qualified <laughs> to be uh, to to be making proclamations about, uh, except that uh, I I am very confident that Bitcoin is within whatever that truth is. <laughs> As am I. Um, and a final thing, and I'll let you go. What's uh, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about uh, just when you first crack into Bitcoin, you get so excited about the implications and all that kind of stuff. Um, and you've you've mentioned, a, you know, a, throughout this conversation, how much you've read in the economic realm and the diet and the philosophy and stuff. I'm just curious. It was in my mind a few minutes ago. What what's making you the most excited uh, right now? And what intellectual pursuits, you know, books and stuff, are you most uh, digging into at the moment? Um, <laughs> that's that's a great question. I'm kind of like I feel in between at the moment. Um, there's just a lot of. Uh, anticipation around you know just number go up and what that means um so there's sort of a a number of things that i might have my eye on but nothing nothing in particular um you'll definitely see me tweeting about it once uh once it comes to me but i'm just kind of hyper focused on on bitcoin at the moment what what does uh, Bitstein do at Bitcoin 100k and beyond? Anything different? <laughs> uh, probably not. Honestly, I, <laughs> look, I, I'm gonna have fun staying poor. Yeah, <laughs> and have fun at the 100k yes. party. Hopefully, yeah, yeah. If uh, yeah, if it goes, uh, we'll, if we'll it see. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. Uh, you know when and where that is. Uh, maybe the 100k party. That's that's everywhere. Um, that's all of us. Like that, the hundred K party was uh, within us all the, all along. Um, yeah, I, I I don't know. Like that's that's a great question. Um, I think I think uh, the you know well into the future post hyper Bitcoinization. You know, a- as we enter a time when uh, people can be less concerned about day to day expenses. You know, like having to to live more uh, in the short term and just be able to slow down and think about the long term. Mm. I think that's when a lot of interesting things uh, will, will come about. And I think for me, I, I'm excited for a future when, you know, I can uh, afford to uh, have fun staying 
slightly less poor uh, <laughs> and be able to just, you know, have the time to devote to all kinds of other stuff. Cause um, you know, now it's, you know, people still got to work and they still got to pay rent and all of that. Um, so, you know, when, once the citadels are built, you know, much, uh, much less uh, rent and property taxes when you just own a citadel. Uh, so that, and, that'll, that'll help. And, and I think it's an age old, uh, circumstance. Like once the battle is fought and won, you know, because so much of your energy goes into engaging in the, in the battle, right? What, however it's characterized. You just have to find new battles. Well, yeah. Well, you got to find, find new meaning. Right. And so you, your focus shifts to, you know, other areas of, of deep meaning. And I'm like you probably, I'm, I'm excited for, uh, you know, what, what, the culture and what the individuals in the culture, all of us homies in the citadels, like what I, I what, do wonder what, what occupies our focus for meaning, you know? Yeah, I do wonder what a hundred thousand, you know, you know, how how that's gonna begin to change things. And especially like hundred thousand, let's all be clear, that's extremely early. So yeah. I don't even like I don't even like thinking of hundred thousand as an endpoint because it's so it's so early. Um but like when you get into the 1 million, 10 million territory where Bitcoin is basically vying for, you know, a replacement for gold and eventually replacement for the dollar. As you start to get into there, I mean, we're already seeing, you know, mass mutual comes in with however, you know, hundred, hundreds of millions of dollars pouring into Bitcoin. That's going to become a lot of money. You're going to have uh, oil and gas companies, um, coming in because they're interested in all of the energy stuff. You're going to have, you know, everyone is going to be submitting to number go up. So with that in mind is I do wonder, you know, just how the, the Bitcoin culture itself will change. Like, mm. you know, there is a time where, you know, there weren't as many people going around like calling out scams or whatever. And now anyone says anything remotely bad about Bitcoin and you just have like an endless horde of people Coming in is like H A V E, <laughs> you know. Um, so it's there. There's been like a real shift, and like I, I do wonder if you know at some point, you know, <laughs> you know, it could be that like you know, I think we'll move on from Twitter eventually, you know. Um, and I, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know when. I don't know what will actually kind of uh, cause a migration. I don't know what the replacement would be. But I can imagine that uh, you know the with with one battle won, and it's like you know when you have when you have like Goldman Sachs eventually just like memeing my own stuff, you know, or it's like they're just talking my book. It's like it makes it a little less like necessary for me to continue talking my book, right. and I can go on to do you know just other things. Um, if that's happening, I do wonder, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of Bitcoiners with a lot of very interesting, um, ideas and interest. Well, we could just see an explosion of, of culture, a sort of Renaissance. Um, you know, there is more like Bitcoin is a means to an end. Mm -hmm. Um, it's not the end itself. So, you know, I think it's going to open up a lot of, um, culture and industry and all of that. And I kind of do, I, I look forward to that. I, I, there's part of me that looks forward to Bitcoin actually becoming just a background process so that we can just be doing something greater. We're not just talking about like citadels and like sound money and how great sound money is. It's like, we're living it and we get to see the fruits of it, you know, space exploration and, you know, uh, all kinds of like crazy energy stuff. So we, 
you know, we're living in like Galt's Gulch using, you know, weird static electricity from John Galt um, to, to power, you know, just incredible lives. You know? Yeah. Uh, that's kind of long term. Bitcoin's going to be background and it's going to be awesome. It's going to be it's going to be a good thing when Bitcoin becomes a background process. A hundred percent. I mean, what what do humans do when they have more freedom, prosperity, and peace than they've ever experienced before? I mean, I, I totally agree. It's going to be a renaissance, and I'm super pumped for it. Yeah. Well, um, just like read read uh, Stefan Zweig, uh, the world of yesterday, and see like you know uh, what what Vienna was like uh, at the height of you know kind of this this sound money. Uh, world of, well, of your, and uh, then consider how much better we'll have it. It's funny you bring that up, man, because I, I think about that precise example. I haven't read the the book or article you're referring to, but I uh, I think about that precise example all the time because, like, there are many places in the world you can go where you can see the vestiges of you know a better time, you know, typically predicated on sound money and peace and prosperity. And Vienna is one of those places where. You know, I've had the opportunity to travel a lot, but it, there's few places as grand and uh, impressive as Vienna. I mean, it's a really like, especially the obviously the old quarter. Uh, it's it's a tremendous place, and just trying to cast your your mind's eye back to when it was in its prime, right? When when all of that was being built and constructed, and the culture and the music and the architecture and everything, um, and just to think that what we're what we're dealing with now, what we're all engaging in and contributing to, and and hodling now is a form of of money on which culture can be predicated yeah. that is so much better than what that culture was predicated on and what and from which emerged that amazing all the stuff i just mentioned what we're dealing with now is orders of magnitude better so what is that going to elicit in the form of culture and arch architecture and technology and music and art and you know like it's it's yeah it's so staggering I mean, it's so goddamn exciting yeah with that in mind, you know, because you, you basically caught me off guard. It's like, sorry, guys, I don't have, like, the new red pill for you yet. Um, I'll, I'll work on it. Um, <laughs> but uh, that that does, you know, it's, it's a call to action to myself and I think to other, you know, Bitcoiners in general. is like, while you're thinking about number go up, have as a background process in your mind and hopefully become, like, an active process if, you know, when, when, whenever it is that you can start to make it such... Um, think about the big problems, you know, what, what is, what is like a, a hundred year problem, um, that you want to see solved, you know? Uh, so, you know, earlier I was talking about information storage. It's like, I actually don't know, you know, maybe there's uh, maybe we have a Bitcoin librarian, um, out there who can, who can help kind of <laughs> help, help me understand how, how some of this will, will be possible, but like, how do we archive, you know, uh, all of this digital information we have in a way that is accessible in a hundred years where it's, you know, one, we can open it at all. And two, uh, we can, you know, categorize it and organize it in a way that we even can find what we're looking for. Um, I think that is a, a huge problem. Um, so stuff like that, I want to see solved. And I think there's many problems out there. We can, you can look at every facet of society and you can find problems like that. You know, carnivory shows like this glaring hole in food production and uh, and in a lot of just, you know, ways science is done. Um, 
that that opens opens the space for a lot of you know grand ideas of like you know if you have low time preference and you have the means to now engage in low time preference things you don't have to think about like what's going to bring me returns this quarter but you can think about what's going to bring me returns in 50 years you can start to think about these big problems and i encourage bitcoiners to start doing that um, I think a good example, there's a, there's a great guy on, on Twitter, Stephen Chow, um, shout out to Stephen. I'm sure he's listening. Um, he, he is very interested in, uh, Bitcoin as a means for being able to cultivate the arts. So he's, he's a big fan of art and a lot of, uh, traditional styles in art, which are not as common anymore. We're all, we're all uh, having to look at, at Rothko and only Peter McCormack is, is happy about that. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm glad that one person can enjoy it. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, he, he, uh, he is looking at these traditional things. He points out that there's actually a lot of people in this world that currently know how to, um, do these, these types of traditional art that, um, aren't as sort of, uh, readily popular anymore. But the problem is you have to find them and you also have to become a patron of them. So for Stephen, um, being a patron of the arts is his goal. And he's starting already. Like that's his, that's his passion now and it's pa his passion in the future. And so he's, he's doing a lot to seek out um, artists and do what he can to, to help promote their art, help cultivate their art, help collect it, et cetera. Um, and I think that's, you know, going to, to that I, I think is very admirable. And I think that every Bitcoiner should find that thing of like, if you had a hundred years to not worry about anything else except like one problem, what is that big problem and go figure out how to, uh, you know, make it happen because, you know, <laughs> we're going to have to make it happen. We're going to make it happen. Bitcoin's winning. Hundred percent, man. I uh, find I totally, another thing to win on. <laughs> I, I, I totally agree with that sentiment. I think it's great, uh, great framing or great advice. Um, and I should probably let you go now. This has been uh, an awesome chat. We'll have to do it again sometime. But yeah, I would love to. Is there anywhere you wanted to direct people or any final final words before we shut this down? Yeah, I mean the big one. Just you know, follow me on Twitter. Uh, my my DMs are open. Um, I'm I'm not always the best at responding to it, um, but I, I will do my best. Uh, but yeah, find me at Bitstein. Um, look up the Nakamoto Institute at nakamotoinstitute.org, and uh, the Noted Bitcoin Podcast is at noted.org. And uh, otherwise, just you know, keep stacking sets, keep hodling, and uh, you know, keep memeing, and and uh, let's uh, let's enjoy this ride. We gonna get some more noted podcasts out of you guys in the in twenty twenty one or oh yeah yeah I mean we've been we've been ramping up production we kind of you know bull market is here it's it's peak peak noted time so nice. um, we're trying to get some more out can't wait all right man well look uh, take care of yourself keep up the great work and uh, we'll speak again soon all right thank you so much cheers brother.